0: Okay, hey everybody. Good morning. Uh, before we get started, the movie Her, we talked about that before, right? Uh, I thought about having a, uh, a movie outing. Uh, the only problem is, is that uh, in looking in the theater is just, I mean, relatively close. The only showings are like 9.20 p.m. However, Glen Ellen, whatever the movie theater in Glen Ellen, it's uh it will be showing it says coming soon and they haven't uh given any kind of showing times but all those movies in that movie theater have a earlier showing so we're going to wait and uh wait until glenn Ellen uh whatever the art theater Isn't it movie, though? I I saw it. Oh yeah yeah it's in movie theaters but it's not a, it's at night tw- it's late Yeah Oh uh I uh, yeah, I think so. I asked the vicar. The vicar said this is what the vicar said. <laughs> um so as of this morning cuz I was so, I was uh the new you know the new movie times come out every Thursday or whatever. So All right, so yeah, I'm excited to see it. But we're going to we're going to try to do it like, you know, well not super late at night, basically, <laughs> and and plus it's convenient. It's, it's in Glen Ellen rather than going farther. Yeah, yeah. The ones for the Glen Ellen right now. It's yeah. It's like one forty-five, and then you know whatever. Two and a half hours later. Two and a half hours later. Two and a half hours later. You know, up until nine, whatever. Okay. Anyways, you don't I mean you don't have to come. I mean it's I think it's uh it's going to be a fun outing because it probably will crystallize uh a lot of, you know, basically what we've been talking about in a very kind of obviously dramatic way. Okay. Um all right, so today the the Idol of I, chapter 2, The Idol of I. And um The Idol of I is, uh, pr- pretty, I don't know, it's sort of self-explanatory. There, there's, I, I, start out here with two examples of the idol of I, and this is actually from an interview that I read from a youth magazine, youth ministry magazine. Brennan Manning and Michael Iaconelli, I think they're both, they both have passed away, but, um, Manning's words especially, I think, are helpful because it shows the two kind of most dramatic examples of how people kind of make themselves into an idol. And that would be kind of arrogance and despair. Okay? So, um, Bernie Manning, I kind of find it a delicious irony when we celebrate the great heroes of our faith, Abraham, David, Peter. We see flawed human beings, and we applaud God's free use of these fragile vessels. But when it comes to ourselves, we say, I'm a sewer. I'm a great big cesspool. I'm no use to God. I think the greatest sickness in the North American church is our refusal to accept our brokenness. Now, uh, last week we talked about unconditional love. So this is kind of reiterating what we spoke about last week, is that... um, Sometimes God's love is great for everybody else except for ourselves and the, the radical nature of what unconditional means. All right, so then um, Iaconelli says, just, uh, put all, uh, let's just put all the cards on the table, guys. God meets us in our sin. Still, deep down, we believe sinning means getting away with stuff, having our cake and eat it too. Sinning is just another road to God. Eventually, it drives us to our emptiness, our flawedness. There, even in sin, we reach a point where we know we can't do this anymore. All I know is that God is bigger than we think. Again, reiterating what we said last week. So, this is where uh, this, this, this part right here is where he, Manning, brings out these two kind of polar opposites of the idols of I. Uh, the greatest regret in my life are the hours, the days, the weeks wasted in self-hatred and self-condemnation. In those moments, my attention is completely on myself. Biblically, that's idolatry. So even in our confession of sin, we have a tendency to make ourselves idle. It's, it's kind of scary to think about. I mean, insofar as what, are, what is a proper confession of sin. We shouldn't waste time in uh, self-recrimination. We must instead offer that broken moment to God and move on in the power of the Holy Spirit so a dog does not return to its vomit, which, you know, of course we do. We enjoy. Which is kind of gross. But, uh, you know, that's Jesus. Jesus says that. The person with low self-esteem and this is, where, this is where he says it most poignantly, is in the same position as the arrogant person with an exalted opinion of himself or herself. Both are focused on self. <coughs> and subsequently, you have made yourself an idol. The one is probably the, the, the arrogant person. We all kind of say, yeah, yeah, all he thinks about is himself, and that's an easy one to feel self-justified against or to smash or condemn. But the other one, the one with low self-esteem, is probably the subtle and most deviant one that Satan uses to destroy faith, I think. Carol. Ah, uh, Okay. Y you, you, you live with uh you live with a lot of things that are difficult to live with though. No, no, I mean, but, and you can't get out without it. I know, but hopefully that same that same reason, like yeah. the person, You just want it shiften that no one can stop. Yeah, right. And the same with the person that is just Tiddle! Sure, exactly. All right, so Carol has already jumped the gap between relationships, so between yourself and for others. So, for instance, this is all about, like, how you see yourself. I mean, these these quotes. But all of us in our life have kind of come up against people like this. And when you come up, you know, against people like this, all of a sudden now this relationship has affected you. And that's a, I think that's, that's the whole point of today's uh, lesson is when you have turned yourself into an idol, you easily trap other people into yourself. Um, like you said, um, somebody who's low self-esteem, what is a person who comes up to that person, what do they do? That's right. Does that person want to be helped? Okay. Probably not. Or or they dictate that that help. Yeah. Okay, so or, or, or that person enables that person rather than actually helps that person. It's, it's, a, it's a very diabolical way that we handle these things. This, this idolatry bit is, is just pretty, well, pervasive. Uh, anyways, um, so I th- I, what he says right here is, uh, when I stumble and fall, which is not an infrequent occurrence, it's no time for breastfeeding. My response should be, say, I blew it. Return to the awareness of the presence of God and move along. Change doesn't come through self-condemnation. Change happens when I accept myself as broken, which that's, we wouldn't necessarily, as Lutherans, define, say that. But, but the, the first part, change does not come through self-condemnation. That is absolutely true. In the book, though, uh, how is this these words kind of relate to the book? I don't have to remember, but uh, this woman gets distracted in prayer. And she has two spiritual kind of directors. The new one. What is the new, Alice, right, Sister Alice? What does what does she say? I mean, in your own words. I mean, you don't have to necessarily. Uh, so yeah, Nancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Push, push the chin up. Hey, up here. And and that, this is a, she's uh, Manning's echoing this sentiment is that it does no good to condemn yourself to hell because, first of all, uh, like Sister Alice, you know, there's no condemnation there. It's just like a parent, "Hey, hey, pay attention here. Now, this is certain things in life, so I'm speaking kind of generally here, but Manning is basically talking about condemnation where there should be no condemnation. Um in, in Lutheranism and to a certain other degree, different denominations, uh, I, we often run, well, we kind of work with the vicar on this coming from seminary. When people confess their sins, there is a temptation to make sure that they're what? Or what's a genuine confession? But maybe that's his how would you describe a genuine confession a confession of sin by the way not like confession of faith but what's that okay yeah so what does that mean feel oh, did you say feel repentant well you're, you're remorseful or, you mmm know, you okay yeah i uh, i would say that you don't obligate someone to feel remorse Now, how, how would that be, how, yeah, so you, so some people would say, you're not sorry, that's not a real confession. Because you're not, when I say sorry, you feel bad about yourself. It's not until you feel bad about this that I know for sure. Okay. Now, should I, should I, should I, so for instance. What about for showing intent? Okay, so that's a different question. I mean, they're, if they're showing remorse and they're showing that they're going to change themselves, then it's... okay. Showing, yeah, showing remorse. What do you mean by that, though? Most of the time, we just describe it in terms of feelings and emotions. And I, I would uh, be careful with that as a pastor. No, 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 no. okay, so let's give an example. Um, let's say, uh, um, I've been doing something my entire life. Well, I'll give you a most dramatic example. Uh, a couple shows up to my office and they're having premarital sex. They haven't really been in the church since they were kids when we didn't talk about sex with them. And they show up and they're like, I say to them, hey, you know, it sounds like you guys are having, you know, sexual relations, you know, you. you You're going to need to abstain from that. What? Really? Uh, And this has actually happened. And the response is, are you serious? Um, Not in a shameful way, but in a realistic, like, ignorant way. Now, for me, if I were to demand remorse for them, I would have to say to them, you, you need to feel sorry about that before I know for sure that you're going to change your ways. Now, what am I doing to that person? I'm shaming them, which of course is a good thing, right? We love that. <laughs> no, no, it, it's very straight. Now, see, this is, where, uh, this is kind of a peculiar situation, but there's times where we as people... When we confront someone that, they're, I mean, they're sinning, they've done something wrong, they could say, oh, man, I, I, you know what, okay, Whew, it's going to be hard. Okay, but, okay, I will do that. That's right. I accept, I accept that as a repentance. I, did, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. But now I know. And now I will change. Now, to a certain extent, they might feel bad about it. But I'm not making them feel bad. I can't force feelings on people. That's called manipulation. That's called objectifying someone. Anyways, so um, this is where we kind of have to realize is that when we self-condemn ourselves, to a certain extent, we are putting shame even on ourselves. We are working up these emotions. And now I know what? I am worthy of repentance, because I have shown enough emotion or sorrow." This is precisely what Martin Luther rails against. This is what the Reformation is all about. Luther says, nope, you can't do that. You can't make someone, and how it used to be back then was you usually usually piled on things. You got, you better do this, you better do that, and then I know for sure. So it was a warped sense of restitution, but anyways, okay. So the, the, uh, so what we, it's interesting. When we make an idol of I, we often do it through self-condemnation. Not always arrogance. I think arrogance is kind of the easy thing to do. For most observers. You know, we're able to spot arrogant people. Um, okay. So the uh, interesting thing, though, is Iaconelli's response. Eugene, Eugene Peterson says we're all in the business of impersonating ourselves, which I think is a great, is a great kind of a fun way of understanding idol, idolatry. Rather than being, um, being ourselves, we, we, we try to be ourselves. And usually trying to be yourself results in some form of action, word, or deed. So it, it's a form of works righteousness, but in a very di- diabolical kind of backwards way where I work up my sorrow. Well, so, like, for instance, I mean, what's that? We impersonate ourselves. What does that mean? Yeah, so, like, you, well, this goes back to, this would be another, this would be a sub-point to looking in the mirror and seeing a, a rather than seeing you for real, you see the idealized self. Now, this would be a, just a warp understanding of the, ideal, the idealized self. Someone who is, uh, like, depressed, see themselves always as unworthy. And that's, for them, that's an idealized self. So they think this person is worthy of attention, so I need to impersonate this person. I need to be that person. So impersonating yourself is just simply trying to be your idealized self, whether it be be super beautiful or um, really needy. I think you might have, I mean, so... uh, yeah. We're talking in circles here. This is something where um I I simply wanted to uh show that idol idolatry uh, the idol of I is is sometimes arrogance but it's also uh this self condemning person. Where arrogant people kind of de- condemn everybody else. The 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 depressed person condemns themselves. But in either way it's completely focused on themselves. I thought um, in, in the, in the uh, chapter one, the addictive need to be right. Yep. Isn't it an idol too? <laughs> yeah, the addictive, well, that goes with plans and, uh, uh, it, um, well, some of the super idols at the end of the book too. So the addictive need to be right. I and mean, that, that can play out on a variety of levels. That's exactly right. Pardon the pun. Okay. Now, the thing is, though, as Carol brought up before, is you run up to these people who are either arrogant or um, depressed or, you know, fear and loathing, someone who loathes their life. Uh, uh, The beginning of Chapter 2 has a really nice quote, and I don't know if you kind of meditated upon that. Every evil screams out only one message. I am good. And not only does it scream, but it demands that the other people cry out tirelessly in response. You are good. You are freedom. You are happiness. So the idol says, this is who I am, and you are going to have to be in agreement with me. Uh, an agreement is not simply a mental thing. But, as we, we didn't really get to, to talk about it last week at the end of the Bible study, but loving your neighbor as yourself, we have always, a little part of us thinks, since I like ice cream for dessert, I'm, well, if I have guests over, I will serve ice cream for them. Because, that's what I like. <laughs> and that's what they're going to like. So, that would be kind of a silly example of what this quote is, but you are going to make them agree with you, but not simply just agree with you, but also live with, live with you or be like you. Okay, And, that, and that's something that um, is really what we want to kind of tackle today. So this quote actually shows how the idol of I collapses relationships into it. It doesn't actually see others as people, but objects that are meant to be incorporated into itself. Okay? That is uh, a scary thing to think about, that it happens all the time. I have a little scenario where it's going to happen. I read it to Mary Caesar already, so she knows, so she can't answer this. But... W- before we get to that. Um, So then Scalia, though, uh, drives out a little bit more on page 28. We want, but we know not what we want. So we strike out in a kind of blindness, grabbing on to whatever seems like it might tell us who we are, where we belong, and thereby create an access to the love we crave. Of course, the love that she's speaking there is the misunderstanding of love that we talked about last week. It's not unconditional love. So what's interesting is the idol of I is only understood in terms of identity through this distortion of other relationships, meaning that it has no identity unto itself. It's based on what other people say or what the idol itself makes other people say. I don't know what you mean. Well, when you are a certain age level and then as you get older you feel the younger generation be oh. living like you live. Yeah, yeah, oh absolutely. And so that's kind of like
1: um uh, you thinking, I aye, you need to live like I do. That's right. You should think like I do.
0: Oh yeah, that, that's a that's a real easy example. In fact, yes uh the next chapter, Scalia uh I think starts out with um Groups we like we 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 associate with groups, based on that very scenario, because hey they're kind of like me, so I'm gonna. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, right. And the things I used to want from her were really the ones I wanted. Mean, <laughs> one I, I can't be quite sure, but she's not as social, and She doesn't go out as much as I would in a hurry. So I would always push her into things that I thought she should be doing. She should be doing, yeah, right. Thinking or experiencing yep. or whatever. And I wrote her in the comments, but how it it took me too long to figure out, you really are nothing like me. <laughs> right on what that's right yeah especially as parents so I, I didn't get into this but that's exactly I thought that would be a little too emotionally involved because we do this with our children all the time oh I, I mean it, it's a default actually for us I feel like um, so, again, this is a thin line, though. Once again, we keep going, because here's another thing, too, that Kirby, uh, as a parent, and all parents, you know, your child could be, in fact, being closed in on themselves. And you, as a parent, can help them get out of that. But, however, it's one of these, uh, yeah, things how we, we screw up a lot. And she's oh, I do appreciate how you've incurred. I mean, there, it wasn't, like, all negative, but I think, yeah, right. I think I just wasn't screwing myself something. Yep. Yeah, Well, you can still feel bad about it. I, by the way, it's not bad to feel remorseful or bad about things. It's just that you can't force it on people. That, that was the thing I was getting at, is that I, I feel bad about a lot of things. Oh, man, I feel terrible. And I still feel terrible about things. Like, my, uh, I think I might have told you the story about how I, uh, my younger brother wanted to play with me one time. And uh, my buddy and I, we raced off on our bikes, and my, my younger brother followed me to his, this my friend's house because he just wanted to play with us. And I just remember telling him to leave. We don't want you. And he started crying, and I was like, fine. It, good. Get out of here. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I still to this day feel terrible about it. I feel awful. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, I mean, that's, that's exactly right, though, right? The, but that could have happened. Yeah, right. So, anyways, so I still feel bad about it, and I'm still, I'm still trying to live in forgiveness about that. But, okay. <laughs> I need to. I need to get over it. I do. Okay, anyway, okay, that's beside the point. So, okay, so the trappings of ours. So the, the, when we trap other people into the idol of I... That really, base, that really is fundamentally because we don't know who we are. And, and how we think of ourselves in terms of identity is really one of the first steps how we combat or smash the idol, uh, the idol of I. All right, so the first thing is and is uh, uh, I didn't have enough time to whittle all this stuff down, but uh, there's this guy, Eberhard Jungel. He's a He's a German. So, Christy, you can read it in the original language. I don't know. I'm assuming, I'm assuming the English is still pretty good. Uh, but he, he wrote a really nice essay about uh, truly, uh, being truly human. He's a Lutheran guy. But uh, he has a nice quote here that I think sums up our kind of our modern understanding. Um, they under- so the modern understanding is a self-realization. Their identity, uh it's their privilege and they under them understand themselves and their humanity precisely in terms of being able to actively determine themselves. So you get to decide who you want to be. What kind of person you want to be. And uh I would say that's not true, actually. Okay? (laughs) Okay. Now um because if you decide who you are, then uh, good Lutherans, we would say that sounds like what? In terms of even salvation, works righteousness. <coughs> Holly. Yep. And I said, you know what, like, you guys are not on your own. Like we do this together. The community wants to go to church. <laughs> if you decide like you want to dilly daily and sleep in for 15 more minutes, you're affecting the whole community. So this like this. Uh-huh. Uh, not only we not do you that with ourselves, we can actually help us, but it really affects the community. That's right. I, that goes back to what are we. just, I mean, so this is another level where the idol of I traps others in it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah Yeah. No. I it, like, for instance. Uh, well, well, Pastor Actually, speaking of, so the schedule. This is this is this again. It's funny, uh, Scalia. It does a really good job of ordering these chapters, I think, because the next chapter is the, well, it's the idea, which we've been talking for, for a while, but then it's plans, I believe. Oh, is it prosperity? Yeah, see, it, it, for me, it's just one big tapestry. I'm like, all this stuff is connected. But the idea is, so like this, for instance, is, is being late. Pastor Ruzek and I, we've had this conversation since I've been here. Because um, he, 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 will, he, he will articulate how being late then takes other people's time away from them. And that's stealing or that's bending them to your own will. Now, of course, I, I don't disagree with that. But I take the side where the plan or the schedule then becomes that which bends all wills to it, which can also be an idol. Oh, I'm going to use that at home. So, <laughs> all right, so, so the, it's a. Uh, um, but however, though, the whole point though, of this quote, though, is to say that you can't, you can't decide for yourself on multiple levels. First of all, just because you can't, because we're sinners. And a sinner who decides for himself, obviously, is, it's a sinful choice. And then on the, on the other aspect of what Holly said is when you attempt to, it just simply brings other people into your idol. It's, so you, you can't do it that way. Donna. Donna. What was your question? Oh, no, I would, I, you were talking about um we can look at them at different ways. Yep. Um, when we were going over the quote by Manny, yeah. It says change doesn't come through self condemnation Right. It happens when, and I thought maybe uh, it might be right to say when I accept when I accept myself as God accepts me. Uh when you acknowledge yeah, that's right. I I would say when you when you acknowledge uh, what God says about you—that's exactly right. Now, the only thing, though, is—is is that change is kind of a, is a difficult word because. Um, so, when God forgives you, how can you say you change? So How's how that changed? Like, what changes about you? Okay, well, yeah, you can forgive yourself, but in terms of, like, who you are, like your identity, what changes about you? This is kind of, a, kind of a backwards thing, is that so when God forgives you, you become who you're supposed to be. So the, the, the thing is, is that your change is actually just a change. It's not really a change per se, as much as you just being who you're supposed to be. And it's that sin actually is the, is the thing that changes you. But we, I mean, we talk about change all the time. I always, I always want to be, especially within that quote, is that... Well, well th- this is goes back to the notion of faith. Because uh, faith simply lets God do his thing. I think Pastor Brzezik says, faith is simply agreeing with God. Right? And that, that's, that's, a, that's a fine way to say it. Um, you could say faith is just letting God do his thing. You know? But we'll actually get to that. Now, so the, the whole point is who has the authority to decide who you are? And modern society says you have the authority to decide who you are. Um, but this guy, has a very he, he says no worldly authority can decide what kind of human person I truly am. Even I myself cannot decide that. The right to judge the being of the person is withheld from all earthly persons and authorities for the only one who made the person into a person is competent to make a judgment concerning the being of a person and that one is God alone. So in order to smash the idol of i that you don't look into yourself I mean this is really important. Because you don't decide who you are, okay? The idol of I decides who you are. Surely. But if God does law. You have free will to blow it yourself anyway. Uh, yep. But but um, okay. Well, yeah. So hang on. So so that that's a different that's a different thing. Is that the one who made you is the only one can tell you who you are. That's really important for us to understand. So if you want to know who you are, you don't look to yourself, but you look towards God. If you want to know who you are, you don't look to yourself, you look towards God. Lindsay. Lindsay. That's, that's right. Hang on. So you're, you're, uh, you're one step ahead of the game. <laughs> if you look at the bottom of the page, there's a sub-point. I am baptized. Yeah. Okay. But, but I, yep. Just yeah, I know. <laughs> like right. right and I'll remain that way. God made us that way and I can't change God into more than merely right. Yep. You can't make it quiet. That's right. No human authority. Earthly authority. And let me that becomes an idol. I don't know. This is so Yeah, so this is the thin line now because what we find out is and this is very um uh, not to get out on a tangent here, but when someone says, God made me this way, that doesn't actually mean God made them that way. <laughs> okay? So you, you do have a thin line. You, you, you have this line that you're always, you're always kind of tightroping in terms of the truth and your idol. Krista? But the pastor, is it sometimes that you are just, um, that others um, judge you, not, not judging, say, oh, you are nice, yeah. or in, in this way, that um, you have a little bit of the confidence from um, others' opinion. That's right. Uh, yeah, so, okay, so this is good. Um, we do get confidence from people encouraging us. This is right. However, the encouragement from others needs to agree with, with what God says. And uh, so, uh, so okay, so, like, for instance, here, here we go. I, I, I brought this out. I recently heard a dad say to his son, now his son, this is uh, several weeks ago, and this son, who is a grown man, I mean, this is not like a kid. He is an adult, so these are two adults. But the son was, he was depressed. He was down on his luck in a sense and this family as a whole was really concerned about him and they they said to me you know hey could you come and talk with this guy oh yeah sure no problem and um for whatever reason this guy had a lot of shame but the dad even though he invited me to talk he he did, he did a lot all the talking essentially and one of the interesting things he said was, I've never seen you so alive as when you're playing music. Now, that is a, that's a real nice thing to say, right? That's to encourage or affirm. But what's actually fundamentally wrong with this? If he's not playing music, he's not alive. And so his life or his identity is based on what? Yeah, which is an action, a work. If you want to use the uh, theological language, which, of course, sets up a lot of despair for the young guy, because he wasn't a musician. He actually had a nice job, a very nice job, but um, that that wasn't helpful, I don't think, for the young man. But of course on the on, this, on the level it's on a, that's very encouraging um, I that yeah. yep yeah. I mean so this but all this part and parcel though goes to this reality of how we identify ourselves. It's always attached to um, what we do, meaning like what we say about ourselves so it could be a, a word or a thought or even an action or a work to, to kind of use that theological language. Um, And this goes with with a lot of, like, you go to parties and they say, well, what do you do? That question is generally not only about your job, but it's more about, like, I want to know what? I want to know who you are. There's a lot of danger in this, right? Because, of course, if you feel like you don't do anything, then you're less... Worthy, and you have no identity unless you're doing something. That happens typically with housewives when you say I'm um, a housewife, and people look at you like, oh, you don't do anything. You don't do anything, that's right. You're just a housewife. Which, of course, every husband knows that's a big fat lie. Yes. Or they should, at least. So, so this, this dad who says this, I've never seen you more alive than when you're playing music, was to encourage the son to keep playing music. But this identity is, really wasn't based on grace and unconditional love. It was very subtle and, and diabolical, but it was based on works and merit. Okay. So if that is how we see ourselves, in terms of works and merit... And when we come up to people, we need to have them then agree with us that I am valued or I am who I am based on this kind of identity. So that was the second part where evil says, I am good, and then demands everybody to say, You are good. You are, ver- yeah. But by doing that, you actually do violence to others. Now, I intentionally use the word violence because you coerce and manipulate. might not be physical, but oftentimes it's emotional. I'm, I'm almost getting to my little dialogue that I made. Um, which I think is... Well, hopefully, yeah. So, uh, so, okay, so the whole point, though, so as you find out who you are, you obviously live in relationships. Now, this is something fundamental. You can't live unto yourself. As many people think that you can be, you can, you can live life on your own, and you can actually define who you are. That's actually a lie, right? Because even what Krista says is that I go through life seeking affirmation from people because that makes me feel good. But usually, I dictate the affirmation. So. Um, you, you live in relationship, and how Lutherans have talked about is quorum mundi and quorum deo, between the, uh, before the world and before God. Um, so when you dictate these relationships, uh, uh, okay, so hang on, sorry. Way back in the beginning, depressed, arrogant, you are in, in this is another Lutheranese thing, this is where I didn't have enough time to actually write this out, but, so I kept it in there, um, you're turned into in, into oneself. You're curved into your you, um, and with that stance, then as you relate to people, the only way you can relate to people is if you you incorporate them into this relationship. So as you, so you tell you, it's with God and with others. Um, your people are curved into this, and by doing this, the relationship is actually destroyed, and the other person is violently forced into the idol. Um, Oh, so, so here, this is one of the ways that we do this. This is a conversation between Jane and Anne. Jane says to Anne, hey, it's time to go. You know, I, I think we should probably get going now. Anne says, oh, uh, uh, okay, I just, um, well, uh, yeah, I, I guess we can leave now, yeah. Jane says to Anne, Anne, do you want to stay? I, is that what you're trying to get at? Anne responds, uh, huh, what? No, 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 we can leave if you want. I, I just, you know, I, I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do yet, but, um, but no, 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 we, we can go, I guess, that's, that's, that's fine. Jane says to Anne, are you serious, Anne? Fine, we'll stay. Are you happy? <laughs> Anne says to Jane, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, oh, that, that's, that's, that's fine, too, that, that's great, that's good, okay. What is that? That's passive-aggressive behavior. That is a form of making people into yourself, into an idol. Now, here, this is the thing, though. That's probably a very obvious example. But, of course, just making sure I knew what passive-aggressiveness was, I went... Uh, boy, I didn't write down the website. It was a, uh, the American psychological whatever... Uh, APA or something like that, American Psychological Association. So, examples of passive-aggressive behavior could be non-communication, when there is clearly something problematic to discuss. Avoidance, ignoring, when you're so angry that you feel you cannot speak calmly. Evading problems and issues, you know, know, basically burying an angry, you know, burying yourself into the sand. Procrastinating. Intentionally putting off important tasks for less important ones. Obstructing deliberately stalling or preventing an event or process of change. Fear of competition. Uh, Avoiding situations where one party will be seen as better as something. Ambiguity. Being cryptic, unclear, which of course is what the conversation was. Sulking. Being silent, remorse, sullen, and resentful in order to get attention or sympathy. For me, that's a very common one, too. I mean, that I experience. Hopefully, I never do. Uh, chronic lateness. <laughs> Again, we talk about that? A way to put you in control over others and their expectations. You don't have to say that to Pastor Brzezik, by the way. That, that one you can just keep to yourself. Uh, chronic forgetting shows a blatant disrespect and disregard for others. Fear of intimacy. Often, there can be trust issues with passive-aggressive people. And guarding against becoming too intimately involved or attached. Um, so that, that helps them be in control of the relationship. Making excuses. Always coming up with reasons for not doing things. Victimization. Unable to look at their part in a situation. We'll turn the tables to become the victim and will behave like one. So rather than being responsible... It's someone else's fault. Self-pity, the poor, poor me. That would probably be like sulking. Blaming others for situations, okay. Uh, yeah, then all the rest of them are kind of subpoints of everything. Lear- learned helplessness is another one that I thought. All right, so as I'm reading this, I'm like, holy smokes. Everybody is a passive-aggressive person. I really, I, you know, I really thought, oh, I had a pretty clear understanding of what that meant. And I realized, yeah, crap. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I think though, like that's just that's just one example of how we manipulate and make people kind of do things. And the thing is, though, we just do it without even thinking about it, right? Isn't that, I mean, that that's kind of the, the the sadness and the the scariness about that. So, um, but I mean, there's a variety of other ways we force people into who we are. I mean. Uh, 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 North Korea, you know, cult of personality, that's another, you force people into believing a certain thing, and so, I mean, there's a variety of things that, you know, w- we do to make people into our image. I think one of them is, uh, th- this will be another example, I might have said this to you, too, but I, there's, there's these defining moments in my life where I re- learn these things, I try my best never to forget them. So there was. A, I went back home. This was when I was in college. I went back home to my home church, and I saw a girl who uh, you know I hadn't seen for a while, and um, she was talking about something in her life because I had asked the question about it, like, "Hey, what's going on? What are you up to?" And she had moved, or maybe this was right after. I can't. No, it had in college. Um, and so she starts like talking. Of course, I asked this question, so you would presume what? I want to know. So she's saying it, and I I interrupt her without even thinking about it and start talking about a similar experience in my life. (laughs) To which she confronted me and said, I thought you wanted to ask about me. Did you just want to talk about yourself? Man, I, I remember this very clearly. This was in church. It was, like, after the service in, like, the narthex or the hallway or whatever. And I'll never forget that because she was absolutely right. And I didn't even think about it. I mean, I didn't even think. I didn't think. I, I, didn't, I was, like, I, I was shocked. But then I, re, I realized she was, I'm like, holy smokes, I did do that. And I told her I was sorry, but of course, you know, that she didn't really want to talk anymore. I was just like, I'm so sorry. You are right. Please forgive me. I, man, holy smokes. I I just was dumbfounded. But uh, I'll remember that from now on. But I I do it all the time, too, though. Like, I, but now I'm a little more subtle about it. I wait for them to finish what they're saying, and then I tell my story. Well, yeah, okay, so this is the thin line again. It's the relating, or am I trying to get them to be sympathetic towards me now? Or are you listening to what they say, or are you thinking about what you're going to say yep. when they get All right, so this, I mean, isn't that funny? Because, you know, especially when someone, I, I, this is oftentimes uh, with uh, bereavement or, or grieving, or you have someone who's faced a loss, and in your attempt to relate to them, you create a scenario where they actually say back to you, that's too bad, or I'm sorry for you. I'm like, that, that's not good. Because, I mean, you do it without their permission. You, don't, you do this, you make, I mean, in a, I'm really serious. You make them be that way. You're forcing them. You're violently making them to be that way to you. I, mean, I think about it all the time. And I do it all the time, though. This goes back to me. I, I don't, I, 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 sometimes I feel bad about it. I mean, I always feel kind of like, oh, I screwed up. But I'm at the point now where uh, it's a little bit more like Alice is whacking me against the head and saying, stop doing that. You know better. <laughs> oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> That's right. I <laughs> I mean yeah, we all do. Because we all you we, like, oh, can, can relate to you are and, and then you feel like with that person you are you're really like you're, you're turning the conversation about yourself. So so what do we do in these circumstances? Um, I, I was mainly just thinking about relating to God in, when I when I kinda of filled this out the other day. I um uh, so how you combat that with God is prayer. Praying like real prayer, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But as you relate to other people, though, uh, I, um, I, I, uh, the, the big thing is it's not waiting for you to say your experience, but using your experience to ask, like ask questions and further communicate or allow that person to talk more. You, because of this common experience, ha- theoretically have the skill set to create more community. Um, so, well, let's relate it to prayer, okay? Uh, now, prayer is, is prayer is, and, and Pastor Bruzek did all that stuff, so I'm assuming that everyone that would paid attention to Pastor Bruzek over the, that was last year, right, We talked about prayer? Okay. Um, so you're not praying for pink ponies and, you know, you're not manipulating God to do what you want. So, like, think about it that way. So, you come to God with your prayers. Uh, you know, a death of a loved one. You, I mean, you're just pouring your heart out. And, and God says to you, Well, he, he, he would say, Oh, you know, that's interesting. I, I faced a similar situation. Do you remember when I died on the cross for you? <laughs> oh, that's right, God. That's too bad. I'm sorry. I mean, can you imagine God like saying that back to you? But we do that with each other. We force them. (laughs) Sorry, I said that. There you go. No, but I mean, so so that's the thing. So like, if, if we if we so because of God's experience through His death and resurrection, He relates to you. He understands what you're going through, but He doesn't put you back in your place with that. He creates a space where you can communicate more. You you can you can uh, uh, tell more. You can relate more to each other. Uh, yeah, I should have thought of that when I was thinking of that. But anyways, um, so yeah, there we go. So I think as we as we interact with people, you know, being conscious of that is important. But I have to admit, when people are talking to me as a pastor, sometimes I'm saying to myself, "Don't say anything. Don't say anything." And which means I'm 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 still not listening. I'm so concentrated on not interrupting. It's terrible. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Kirby. One of my favorite lines from this favor list this uh twenty eight where it says we are by far our most um favorite and fascinated subject. Oh absolutely. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you're right, but it's like, this, I don't know, it's all about what we're talking about. That's right, that's right, oh, yeah. yeah. All right, well, so now, so Kirby, I, I just want to, we we'll can finish up this real quick. So the idea is like, well, then who am I? You know, who, who, how do we know who we are so that when we first approach God, we understand who we are, but then also as we approach one another, so that we smash these idols and, and, and you know, we, we try not to force people into ourselves. The the first thing is, is, uh, the truly human person is the person who's definitely recognized by God, and in that way, one who cannot be discredited by anything or anyone, not even by him or herself. I think that is a really good thing to think about. A person who is, however, liberated by just this irrevocable recognition for more human activity. Consequently, the enhancement of the humanity of our activity will, as a rule, be inversely proportional to the kind of thing which excites public interest. So, all right, so think about that. So, first, you are as who you are when you are uh, standing in in front of God and God forgiving you, loving you, telling you who you are. Um, And because of that, Nobody or nothing, not even yourself, can change that. Romans eight twenty-eight. 28, uh, well, yeah, 31 through 39 is probably the most. Um, now there's no more condemnation in this. If, if, uh, if it's God who justifies, who can bring a charge against us, you know. And he says, um, for, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, that's a very... But that's exactly it. So you have this recognition from God who you are and nothing. No amount of love that you show to God and no amount of sin can change that. Because we, as Lutherans, don't believe in works righteousness. So none of that will take away from who God says you are. Um, okay. And so that goes into what Lindsay had asked about earlier, is that I am baptized. That is, so Martin Luther says, I know who I am because I'm baptized. I am baptized. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. All right, um, but, you know, I think you can probably read the rest of it. We, We talked a little bit about prayer. And, uh, Oh, loving your neighbor as yourself. So I guess now it comes to the point. Oh, okay. So uh, loving your neighbor as yourself actually means you are the neighbor rather than the neighbor is yourself. So, um, and how I think people can really practice this is um, I don't know, did I actually put this? Oh, yeah. Okay, loving your neighbor as yourself, love children. And love the elderly, I think, are probably the easiest ones because they don't do anything. I know, I know my where I work in shut-ins is a constant encouragement for elderly to know that they are a child of God and they are lovable because of that, not because they don't work anymore, they don't do anything. All I do, Pastor, is what? Sit around. And so they yeah they have self condemnation. Children don't do anything either. In fact, what do they, I mean? They wear on us. <laughs> so, um, but I, I put the homeless, the unemployed, prison. Hopefully, you I, I you know I forgot to look up in Matthew 25, but uh, that's where Matthew says you know. Um, I, uh, so Jesus says to people, come into my kingdom. They're like, what? You visited me in the prison. You clothed me when I was. He's describing all these people that they don't do anything. So um, those are the people we love. And that's loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, And that helps you combat the idolatry of I. So prayer is the first one. And then uh, loving your neighbor as yourself is, is the second thing. But you only do these things, though, based on your understanding of who you are. You can't pray without understanding who you are. Because if you, if you think you're worthy of God's love for something you did, said, or thought, then you approach God with that, right? And then that's how it manipulates your prayers. Um, but again, I think, I think Pastor Bruce has talked about silence, right? You know, when you first pr- that's your first thing in prayer, I think, is shutting your mouth because you have nothing to bring. Okay. Anyways, well, th- th- we don't have any time to talk about that stuff, but you can think about it. At least, uh, you know, when we approach each other this Sunday, we'll have a lot of... <laughs> a lot of listening? Hmm, hmm. Well, the question, as Kirby says, yeah, I mean, as Kirby and Pastor Bruce, you know, showed, you ask questions about people because you want to know. we are both doing that, and no one is answering. <laughs> Where you get? Well, that, that's, so there's a, like, a big battle between idols sometimes, you know? He finds out who wins, so. Um, yeah, then what was the other thing? Oh, well, okay, no All right, let's pray.